Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson. Jason Daphnis, with us as always. Hey, Jason. Hey, Matt. Can we call it The Boss Fade for this episode? Just this Ooh, one episode? <laughs> I, that's very Have you been workshopping that all day? I literally thought about it like when I woke up at 7.30, and I have not stopped thinking about it. <laughs> boss Fade. I like it. Uh, and we will get to the boss very soon. Uh, first, though, we have a great guest. Um, She's a, a great writer, writes about film, music, culture in general for uh, outlets like Paste, Stereo Gum, Little White Lies, Bandcamp Daily, has been involved in the Indie Heads podcast as well, uh, currently has a, um, a, a an article up on ba- Bandcamp Daily about uh, uh, Twinkle Park, as much as I forget. Um, welcome to the show, Natalie Marlin. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm doing great. I've I've been uh, putting both these albums into my head, and I'm just in a great mood because of it. It's which is uh, unexpected considering how dour at least one of them is. But it's I'm I'm in the zone. I feel ready to hop on here. Yeah, and as Jason kind of uh, alluded to, we're uh, we're tackling a, an icon of American music, probably one of the biggest. I think still living and active in terms of recording uh, icons. I think up there with like, you know, people like Dylan and, and, and people like that. Bruce Springsteen, the boss, New Jersey's finest. Um, and I was really happy you picked this album. I, I had, you know, I've, I've had big Springsteen phases. It's kind of been a while. Um, and I definitely had a big phase with this album. Um, and listening to it was kind of a reminder. I think this really... I don't know if it's his best album, um, but it's definitely up there for me. I think that I um, I kind of forgot how much I love this album. It's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Um, I think it's probably not may- maybe as well-known as uh, Born to Run, but it's uh, I think it's equal in quality to that. Um, I think it's a little tougher of an album, maybe a little darker of an album, as the title suggests. Um, so, Natalie, just talk a little bit about, A, you know, kind of your relationship with uh, Springsteen and, and why this particular album kind of uh, resonates with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a very Bruce positive household. Uh, my dad, uh, from the the moment I was born, uh, just because he grew up with Bruce, was a lifelong boss devotee. So it would be a sort of situation where all through childhood, I'd hear at least pretty much every major song in his catalog, but mostly kind of divorced from context because at the age I was growing up in having it be kind of like a CD household, there wasn't much straight album play. So I like knew of some of the albums just as abstract objects more than I did actual products with their own sequencing and stories in miniature. Um, And that's kind of where this record and this particular set of songs came into play because for ages I had kind of written off Bruce as somebody uh, who didn't really fit my sensibilities, felt a little kind of like a little too dorky and genuine and earnest in some capacities for like kind of when I was getting kind of heavily into music as a teenager, like my cool, like detached sensibilities. Um, And then it was not really until I kind of hit my mid twenties where I started kind of revisiting some of his albums as just albums and looking at them in sequence throughout his career that I really started to click with them in ways that I found almost kind of surprising to respond to. I think a lot of it came from a sense of 
familiarity and belonging in terms of it being a part of my childhood and a part of um, growing up in New York, kind of a nearby local identity, but also like there were certain parts of it that became kind of weird and naughty in terms of like different expressions of like uh, gender expression or like ways in which uh, he's posturing different elements of vulnerability. Um, And so for a while I kind of, flitted around a number of things in his kind of what's considered his golden era. So like from around the time of born to run all the way up to uh, born in the USA uh, for some people, possibly tunnel of love. Um, And from there, like my favorite albums of his kind of drifted around. Um, I I loved born to run, obviously, but I was honestly more of a life like ride or die for um while the innocent the east street shuffle which oh is my, a oh my god <laughs> you're like the only other per- like okay that's my favorite springsteen album and like nobody ever says that's their like favorite i i love wild innocent so much i i i took to it a lot for how i that was the one that really kind of clicked a lot of things into place for me because it was the place where when when i was in my mid-20s and i was in the place where i could start kind of like appreciating albums as their own kind of like self-contained story arcs there were it it became such a clear ground for like examining bruce in that lens because that's i feel really where he starts to like develop as a storyteller and that's where a lot of the songs are their own kind of confined narratives but they have so much similar overlap in terms of focal points or ways that they're looking at these different subjects these different figures that all kind of have like common ground that it, it really struck me in that way and that was kind of like what put everything into place and for for a time it was um when i visited darkness after that clicked it became something where i really did appreciate what were like to me at that point the highs and i think because that album uh wild innocent had kind of grabbed my attention the way that did i was always kind of comparing other albums in that golden era against it um and so i kind of like held certain things against it at the time but as time has drifted onward and i've kind of come back to darkness on the edge of town it's become this unique kind of record where i think the what it's doing tonally is really distinct and really strong across the board in a way that I don't think another album of his other than like say Nebraska really does. Yes. Yeah. Nebraska is great. And it's almost kind of exists. And it's like, I don't, I don't know. Nebraska is weird. I almost feel like it's its own little world within his discography. Like mm-hmm. that album is just sort of so distinct. Um, but um, I guess let, let's hear a little bit. I mean, I, I like that you brought up, you know, maybe kind of uh being turned off by almost, I mean, there's sort of a corny aspect to Springsteen. I mean, you can't really get around that. He's, he's a romantic and he believes in like kind of the big rock gestures in a way. And, um, he probably never did that type of gesture much better than the first song in this album, Badlands, which is, uh, I think a, a very classic kind of Springsteen anthem. So why don't we, uh, dive into the, this, the first track here. One thing I like, Max Weinberg sometimes has this really almost like in a marching band kind of aspect to his drumming, this kind of kind of thing. Yeah, it's I I 
really, I find this fascinating as such a kind of almost deceptively triumphant march in its own way for the album because it feels like such a rallying cry. Um, and then I, digging into this more, um, I, had, I had forgotten about this element. During this period, Springsteen was kind of obsessed with this idea of a like, four corners approach to an album where like he'd start each side of a record off with these like big anthemic songs that were meant to be like kind of optimistic outlooks in the face of hardship and then the record would gradually drift towards something more melancholic uh, a little more defeated um and this is kind of i think a real like pivotal example of that where it's it's very much um, what I really like about Bruce's lyricism and what I wasn't able to see by just kind of writing it off as corny is that throughout his lyrics, even when he has that positive outlook, there is a continual reminder of the sense of hardship and of this kind of being beaten down. And I think that this song really exemplifies it in a lot of ways. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, and I guess, you know, he, yeah, he sort of has a bleak, like, sensibility kind of hidden within sort of like anthems which you know i guess born in the usa it was like the ultimate example of that it was sort of like misinterpreted which is kind of a really bitter song in many ways um but yeah it's like you know you spend your life waiting for a moment that just don't come it's kind of like <laughs> it's like a bleak line you know but you feel like it's like this you know powerful anthem thing hmm I also this is this is a great example of um I one of the like underrated aspects of Bruce is um he has these often like very big anthemic rock songs that you sometimes forget how much like certain songs are kind of like rooted in the piano especially during this era it feels it, it's it's very much a sort of type of 70s rock that uh it makes sense that he kind of drifted a little bit more toward like synth elements on born in the USA or kind Mm. of more toward just like pure rock as he kind of drifted into the two thousands. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to think of these songs as so rooted to an element that like outside of a few like big names, like, uh, Billy Joel or some of the other contemporaries that kind of did similar things. Uh, he's working within this element. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. Also a lot of sax, which you just don't hear sax in rock music that much anymore, which I kind of like. Yeah. Um, Clarence Clemens is sax players, one of just the all-time greats for just very good reason. But like him being on the the cover of Born to Run, the kind of like shoulder that Bruce is leaning on is I think a big giveaway in terms of like how vital he is to the sound of the band. Definitely. Um well, I think I'll let you kind of guide us through here. Where, uh, where would you like to go next? Uh, Ooh. Um, I think from here, it's um, it's it's kind of tricky because I feel like the the album as a whole almost kind of like does tell its own story in terms of going through the sequencing. And so we don't have to like dip into every single song with like this amount of detail. But like, um, I think in terms of... Um, the the next track adam raised a k and i think the main vital part of it is um i think there are a few things i think the main thing there is he has these kind of backing shouts of vocals going on that i think are are really kind of indicative of what his music means in terms of like being a part of like something larger than himself like part of like a larger social ecosystem than just him and i think that's the first moment on the album where he really does uh something that 
I think makes this album stand out to me is he throws his voice in weird ways across this album that I don't really ever see him replicating again. Uh, he does it there. He does it on um, Streets of Fire, which I'll probably want to delve oh, into. Yeah, but definitely. it's um, it's it's really this album. Um, this album is in a lot of ways uh, means for him to kind of like diverge from the big sort of like popular success of Born to Run and his kind of like frustrations with like uh, dealing with like the legal troubles and a lot of these things that came from kind of like fretting over it uh, production wise and sound wise and in terms of a popular appeal. And so moments like that are kind of, to me, little tells where he's kind of throwing caution to the wind and he's not quite concerned over whether or not it sounds uh, pretty or right, but more about like, what's the rawest possible way he can express express these emotions. Yeah, let's hear Adam Rizekin. Yeah, this isn't a, it's, it's kind of a, <clears throat> he doesn't really do like heavy songs very much either. And like, this is relatively kind of like heavy for him, you know, kind of like a almost 70s hard rock kind of thing. Yeah, it, it feels very much like right from the get-go, he wants you to know that it's like kind of a ripper. It's kind of the the moment where if the the kind of like opening rally and cry of Badlands is going to go into anything, like while that passion is still there and while there is still kind of like fight in your blood, this is what it's going to sound like. And obviously like the kind of, you know, the biblical references, everything, you know, uh yeah that's that's something that um i know he would like delve into more and more across his career i know that like that especially becomes like an area of fixation for him in like i believe the 90s into like early 2000s he's really sort of like pulling from that a lot more so it's interesting to see it kind of pop up here because it's not often as explicit as this (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of, to me, what uh, the the arc here kind of moves on through here, where it's, you have these first couple of songs that are um, really kind of coming out of the gate strong and coming with this sense of passion, and then it's from here where the rest of this uh, side eye really kind of, I think, is where a lot of the kind of desperation and bleakness and emptiness like kind of starts to peek through in a way that yeah uh might not be entirely clear um i i feel like the next sequence of three is kind of like to me one of the most like fascinating on this album primarily yeah, because yeah. of how it deals with that um yeah well you know i think it's only 10 songs i think we can if we kind of are judicious we can get through them so uh I, the next one is is something uh, is uh, something in the night and uh this has always been a favorite of mine. Um, you know, you kind of talked, touched on some of the kind of, you know, more melancholy aspects of this album and his work. And I think this is a, I don't know, I think this is a really beautiful song. Uh, I've always really liked this one. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like here we have this almost kind of like born to run esque uh, piano intro where he's kind of like setting the stage emotionally, sound wise uh, with that. Um, and it's here where we get another one of these like vocal throws with his like first scream that comes in here. Um, but it's, uh, this is really intensely fascinating to me and really kind of like 
the first bit where his I, I feel like the lyrics here get really interesting in a way that I'll talk about once we kind of like get into the verses. Yeah, no, that that's a great point. I didn't really think about that piano part, but that is very explicitly like kind of referential to like Born to Run. But yet, like, I think the feeling of it is like much less triumphant than that album. You know what yeah. I mean? Would have been. Yeah. Like, I think it's very telling that right from track three of this album, we have something that's kind of like in this emotional tone where it's like, you, you look at Born to Run, which starts with Thunder Road, 10th Avenue, Freeze Out, and Night, which are all these kinds of, um, they're all these kinds of like big kind of energetic songs. And then here we're already kind of in this like very melancholic mode. Um, but I, I think this is the first moment in the album for me where he's really kind of letting it really kind of seep through just how much like uh for lack of a better word darkness is permeating all of the narratives on this song um i especially um uh let me see here it's the second verse here where he says you're born with nothing and better off that way as soon as you've got something they send someone to try to take it away um which is it's it's a absolutely bleak lyric and something that it's an idea that he returns to constantly of this idea that no matter what you have in this life something is going to strip it away at some point um and no matter how much you're going to try to fill it with other things you'll constantly have those reminders that that has been taken away from you at some point by the world yeah no i've always that's a great couplet there another thing i like that he does on actually the very first line that he's kind of you know He's can be very sort of like writerly, almost like short story ish. And I always love that he kind of includes these little details, like while I'm riding down Kingsley, figuring I'll get a drink. Just like the reference to a specific street named Kingsley that you have no idea where that is, but it just kind of adds that like sort of almost short story kind of detail to these songs, which I always admire that about him. Exactly. Um, I did also want to sing a lot one other uh, couplet here, which almost is it, it feels once you've gone through the album almost kind of like a little bit too much of a tell in terms of what the the album is trying to do but uh the last verse here starts with um well we found the things we loved they were crushed and dying in the dirt we try to pick up the pieces and get away without getting hurt which is it it really emphasizes this idea that it's the things that you really love and the things that you're trying to hold on to that when they're taken away from you or damaged or destroyed are the things that are going to hurt the most and sting the most. And it's, it's a motif that uh, will come across on a couple other songs. Um, And that's actually kind of a perfect segue to uh, what I think the next track is doing. Uh, So Candy's Room is interesting for me because um, it's almost... I feel misunderstood. Um, I, I've come across people who love it. I come across people who think it's the weak link on this album. Oh, um, really? I love it. Yeah. It's, it has always been to me one of the, the, the standouts just for where it falls in between these two somber songs. as kind of like one last jolt of life here on this side. Um, but I think there's the placement here is, I think really deliberate uh, because rather than, doing the born to run type thing where he's sequencing these like three really energetic songs in a row by having this very like forlorn song in something in the night uh right before candy's room it kind of paints a different overtone onto um 
what this actual song is doing. Um, so I'm I'm good to get into Candy's room if yeah, you yeah, are. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And this song to me is just, it's just exciting, like just the way it this kind of breakneck way that it starts out, mm-hmm. um, or not, you know, this kind of building like drum thing. To get to Candy's room, better walk. Darkness, the candy's all. Strangers from the city, call my baby's number. But yeah, like already, it's like he's using similar bones of what has come before in these more like triumphant songs, but it already kind of like feels a little more dejected it feels a little more it feels sadder in some kind of a way because of how the piano is casting it and his kind of almost mumbling of these words there like that part's so great <laughs> like, yes no like this... in max with that kind of like martial type of drumming almost yeah his his work with that kind of mode is tremendous on the song and i feel like it's also it um it's it's one of the strongest moments of dynamics across the album where he really kind of uses the the different modes he's working on the album to like great effect. Um, but like lyrically, I think what's what's fascinating here is that on the surface it feels like um, what might be just kind of an uncomplicated love song, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of unspoken tension beneath the lyrics. There's this idea that. Uh, this like love interest is somebody who's like also engaging in some form of transactional sex, uh, like being somebody for these other people, but also still belonging to the the narrator of the song. And there's also um, there's a, this is where I think uh, him being very deliberate uh, with bringing up the idea of darkness across these lyrics is a very pointed thing of showing that for a lot of people who find themselves in these dark situations, they find whatever sort of hope or outlook in these kinds of escapes. Uh, there's lines like, uh, in the darkness, there'll be hidden worlds that shine. And when I hold candy close, she makes those hidden worlds mine. Um, so it forwards this idea that's being introduced in something in the night where there's, a lot of what Bruce is dealing with on this album is that he's bringing up all these different snapshots of ways that people are kind of faced with darkness in their own way and like their outlets of escape, their outlets of trying to like find any kind of light within it. Which is also the, the subject of the the next song that we have. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I really. This is another uh, racing in the street. Is the next one. This is another kind of one of his great kind of like little mini short story kind of songs. Um, and one thing I, I was thinking about this, um, I was actually listening to Born in the Born or sorry, Born in the USA. And there's a song there, Bobby Jean, which I think is kind of his song about um, Steve Van Zant. But um, Springsteen writes a lot about male friendship. I think in a way mm. that a lot of like. Um, a lot of like songwriters don't um, that I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. And again, here we've got this very sort of like somber, almost kind of like, it feels almost funery, like the way that he's mm-hmm. dealing with the piano here. But 
to to your point about the the short story thing, what is always like very striking to me is especially this first verse is very rooted in like very specific details. It feels very lived into this character's reality and this kind of outlet that he has for himself. Me and my partner Sonny built her straight out of scratch And he rides with me from town to town We only run for the money, got no strings attached Yeah, this to me is the... This this has definitely emerged for me as like one of my favorites on the album over the years Primarily for how it, I think, is the... I think the defining example of like the way the album is dealing with this, this complicated theme of being beaten down, having things overcast and finding escape within it. And like, whether or not escape is like really truly actually possible. Yeah. Um, there's uh, the, the lines that like, I always come back to on this one are um, where is it? It's um now some guys they just give up living and start dying little by little piece by piece some guys come home from work and wash up then go racing in the street um which feels it i think there are a number of things going on there where it's both the like dueling ways of handling things that uh kind of get echoed in the title track at the very end um but i think it's also indicative of the fact that the factors for both of these kind of schools of thought are the same. Like there's going to be some kind of like force bearing down on like working class people regardless. And it becomes kind of finding however you're able to like go out and get out there and be able to kind of work through it, escape that pain, escape the misery. And Mm -hmm. for this in what, what I think is really kind of telling about this song is that it doesn't really give an easy answer as to, like, whether or not this is a form of, like, actual escape or not. Like, um, I think the, the instrumental is, like, very reflective of that um, because the song kind of ends unresolved. Uh, it, in, it, it's, it's dealing with uh, the narrative... Um, the the narrator is going out and trying to race in order to get away from all of this with a woman by his side, but it kind of is left unresolved. And there's this long instrumental coda that feels very kind of ambiguous. There's not really a sense of whether or not this escape can be forever of whether or not it is doing any like material good in the long run. There's, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot unresolved and unsaid in kind of where the song ends. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, I think, you know, sort of scenes, whether it's like a drag racing scene or, or whatever, you know, like that, that exists when you're like in your young twenties sort of fade away with adulthood, you know, which he kind of touches on as well. Mm. Like whether, whatever that thing you had was. Yeah, exactly. Cause there are these, that that to me is the is very short story about it is that it has this almost kind of like small little snapshot of the certain period of these characters' lives, but it's also it leaves little kinds of like breadcrumbs about what becomes of these people afterward, but kind of leaves you to think about how 
things might proceed from here kind of Mm -hmm. it leaves the rest of it for you to kind of figure out and imprint onto the story yeah this is one of my favorites this is really just a, a, a very beautiful song um and so i'm assuming that on the album this is where you flip it yes and the promised land because that's what i love about I do love, uh, I think we lost something with the sequencing of <laughs> albums with vinyl. Cause like there was sort of that natural inclination to like start the next side with kind of like, you know, something to kind of grab you. Um, and, and obviously promised land is, you know, in, in more in the mode of like Badlands, um, maybe not quite as, uh, triumphant, but, uh, this is another, you know, one, I think that's sort of an anthem for him. Absolutely. And another, you know, biblical kind of, you know, America is the promised land kind of reference. Yeah. And there's, I think, similarly, like, to, to your point, it, it it's fascinating this being the, the kind of, like, another one of those corners where he's putting something that is a little bit more positive. It has a little bit more energy on it right at the start of the side. Because it does, in a lot of ways, like instrumentally uh in terms of tone also like mirror badlands but there's i think the the key here is kind of like where it gets uh tainted by like the very end of the song where there's this last verse where the narrator is like headed into a storm and there's this kind of um repetition of this this twister that blows away dreams that tear you apart dreams that break your heart dreams that leave you nothing but lost and brokenhearted um and there's, I think it's, there, there's a, a similar kind of, like, ambiguity to, like, where the album has kind of been taken that it can't, like, return from at this point, where there's this sense of you're you're going to have to weather something, and you're going to have to hold on to any sort of belief system if you're going to make it through, like, have to hold on to some kind of hope, and whether or not that hope stays strong and is able to weather those storms is uh just kind of it's it's unclear <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah definitely i also love the the trading solos that happen here where we start with guitar and then head into saxophone and back into harmonica yeah there's in general a lot of some great guitar work i'm assuming that's steve van zandt Yeah, I think even with the kind of like lack of vinyl sides, I feel like this is it's very necessary for this to be here because it needs to there needs to be some sort of at this point affirmation or sense that from one of these characters that there is some kind of hope to be weathered through. It's halfway through the album. We can't just that the album can't be committed to just a downcast outlook for the rest of its time. And so this is where we kind of get like the complicating factor of can there be hope through it? And then 
that's where I think the rest of side B kind of really explores. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the next song is maybe one of the grimmer ones on, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, which, you know, working class life has, you know, always been sort of a, one of his main, I think themes in general, the next one factory, um, you know, is a pretty bleak view. Mm-hmm. This is also, this is interesting because this one is very much almost kind of like a vignette. It's, it's a very, it's the album's shortest song. It's, um, very kind of instrumentally simplistic and feels very monotonous, like the lyrics about being beaten down. I think what's also key is this is like one of the, I think this might be the only song on the album where there's a singular eye, but for the most part, it feels almost detached from that perspective. It doesn't feel grounded through the eyes of somebody the way that the other songs do. Yeah, even that kind of either work in the work in the work in life is almost this kind of like you know day after day kind of repetitive thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is it, it provides like a necessary like breather from kind of like the promised land getting you started, but it also provides that glimpse into like for what Bruce sees as the main sort of factor that gets uh, like kind of the, the cloud that hangs over working class life. Um, And I think this is, in terms of this is this song's place, this is vital in especially kind of like feeding that sort of context into the next few songs that close out the record. Yeah. All right, let's go to, uh, we just got a few left here. Let's go to Streets of Fire. Uh, I think you said this is one of your favorites. Yeah, this has been one that's, emerged as uh, a favorite over the years primarily just because of i think a a lot of it comes down to bruce's vocal performance which is really unlike anything that he's ever done outside like elsewhere in his career yeah no he he digs in almost kind of churchy kind of yeah again go back to the kind of like religious themes throughout the album And here we got this first verse where it's all about like being weary, uh, just being like rendered tired uh, by all these circumstances. But then we hit the the moment where I think again the dynamics like are really key here. That that guitar yeah. and drum hit is yeah, like no. yeah. That to me is probably even like even bigger than like the the 
similar one that takes place during Candy's room, but it's... Yeah. No, Springsteen's great for that kind of... Because he's, like, a big car guy, you know, like, cars mm. figure heavily into, like, his kind of world, and I always think of sort of like a, you know, like a race car, like, downshifting to, like, the next gear, kind of that lift, almost. Mm. And, yeah, here's where we get, like, him just really kind of throwing his voice in a way where it's very outside his normal modes, but it's it feels very much like him letting out all of this like pent up tension and passion that's roiling within him. Like this is the only way that he can really kind of get to the core of what he's feeling. Um, where when you're like beaten down and just fully dejected from everything and in the darkness, you hear somebody call your name. It's kind of, it becomes the thing that almost kind of breaks you out in a way that almost feels like you're getting outside of your body. Yeah, this is one where if we're if we're continuing the kind of short story way of looking at things, um, I feel like this one is interesting because there's not as much grounding detail wise, but I feel like it's yeah. What, what I really like about this record is that it kind of combines very sort of deliberately narrative pieces with these songs that are almost kind of more like tone poems, where he's it's very sort of detached of like clear specific details but he's getting across like so vividly what yeah. these people are feeling and what they're experiencing to the point where you don't necessarily need those details because you've had them kind of placed at certain intervals throughout the album no yeah it, it, it he kind of it's interesting when he becomes like sometimes he's like hyper specific like when he's talking about like you know a hearst like transmission on a car or something versus mm. this yeah and in fact, uh, we we have that right at the start of the next song. Uh. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, let's do it. Let's prove it all night, which this one is kind of, I think, in his live shows has kind of, you know, become like somewhat of a, you know, a mission statement for the band. Mm-hmm. this is again if we're talking about kind of like how the album kind of continually complicates these narratives that like seem very simplistic and almost kind of naive at the outset into something here um i think to me even though this is something that has become so anthemic and like bold and positive in the live setting like in the context of the album like with everything that's preceded it almost kind of feels like you could sense the the kind of fatigue and pain beneath the words and the the desperation of wanting something to get through it in order to just try to find some kind of comfort um that's the second verse that's going on right now which is um everybody's got a hunger hunger they can't resist there's so much you want you deserve much more than this there's this it he's really good in this back half of the album especially with taking these 
sentiments that on their face, if you're not paying attention to them, yeah. seem very sort of uh, rudimentary. Like mm-hmm. he's expressing very clearly there's these desires out there that will make you feel good if you pursue them. But I, it's the twist there of you deserve much more than this, where it's this knowing kind of admittance that no matter what the narrator in the song is able to give this person it's just never going to be enough in the face of all these elements against them. Yeah. And I think, I think you touched on it earlier, but just, I think that's probably what ultimately resonates. So why he resonates so strongly with so many people is just, I think, you know, that there's sort of a yearning in his music, you know, that, that I think everyone, no matter what your situation in life can kind of like relate to on a certain level. Yeah. I think in some ways too, it's, I think a lot of his detractors kind of reduce him to oversimplifying things. And I think it's, it's something that like, I understand because like coming from that perspective previously, that was kind of how I felt about it. But it's, it's very much hearing the songs as just like hearing them uh, without really digging in, uh, kind of hearing these sentiments and not really digging into the, the kinds of context that he cushions them around and i think this is a big example of that where i think part of the appeal is that in a lot of his songs especially like on this album uh across certain tracks of born to run across uh born of the usa during the more forlorn songs there um he often doesn't really like sugarcoat things he's very upfront about the the circumstances that are hardships that people have to overcome and it's I, th- I think that that's really kind of what one of the main things that keeps me coming back is the fact that his narratives feel so simplistic on the surface, but there's a lot more complicated material going on beneath. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's actually, that's one thing I like about doing this podcast is that I tend to, you know, listen in a different way when I'm kind of prepping for the show. And I just kind of, I think I just, I, I noticed a lot more going on lyrically than I, cause I mean, I, I knew the lyrics, but I, you sort of listen in a different way and think about them in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. and now we're, uh, now we're at the end, the darkness at the edge of town. Um, which I love this song. I'm from a very small yeah. town, so I know, I know like the edge of town. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, we had, this we one, had an edge of town. The, this is one where again, like, I think if the record had ended with Prove It All Night, it would be a very sort of... If we're talking about sequencing again, it would be a very sort of different effect of, like, what the the album is trying to say at the end of it. It would, it would definitely have all the elements that we're talking about before, but I feel like it would be a little more optimistic in its approach of, like, you can't get everything that you want, but you are going to get something. Whereas this one... Uh, I... I one of the the verse that hits me the hardest on this album is this like very last one that he has here where it's some folks are born into a good life and other folks get it anyway anyhow well then i lost my money and lost my wife then things don't seem to matter much to me now which i've seen people read a few different ways of sort of this idea of not letting like kind of status signifiers like hold you down but to me it feels it it feels as defeated as it sounds on its tin almost of the fact that you have these things that provided you uh, comfort or that have given you a sort of stable ground to be on 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they're like kind of gone out of your life, it almost kind of is like it reshapes your entire perspective and to me kind of feeds into this desperate outlook that a lot of the characters across the album have. Yeah. And then I, I and then I, I sort of just like, it, it's not as specific, but just there's this sort of like ominous quality of like that phrase, the darkness of the edge of town, especially when he says like, I'll be there on time and I'll pay the cost for wanting things that can only be found in the darkness on the edge of town. Like, I don't want to say it's like occult, but it's almost like, you know, yeah, just he, he not, um, um, across the album, one of the like common lyrical motifs that we haven't really mentioned is this idea of like you have to pay some kind of a price or pay a cost, and like here I think it's where it's the grimmest of this. Um, if you're going into the darkness and paying the cost, it's almost kind of it feels like there's this like mortal threat that's like looming just off of the liner notes not being acknowledged um and i think that this is it's fascinating here how we've been talking about the dynamics and i think here where the verses are these kind of more subdued uh mostly like organ driven uh bits with these like little kind of like guitar strums but then it's once the chorus hits that it becomes this big anthemic sort of sound but it's it's a it's in service of the darkness in this case mm-hmm. it's not quite a triumph like every other time that it's kind of been that explosion of sound yeah it's i think when when i really started clicking with this album and realizing kind of just how neat the thematic package of everything going on in the sequencing is in terms of charting the trajectory from Badlands all the way to here as like the big capper became a sort of situation where the the more I kind of poured into it with that kind of context, the more it kind of emerged to me as a text that is this rich to like dig into. And I think that's in a lot of ways, that's kind of become why it's become my favorite record of his over time. Yeah, no, it was really, um, I hadn't listened to this album for a few years and it was really, um, yeah, it was just really good to kind of reconnect with it and kind of remember and also listen to it a little more deeply than I probably had normally. Um, but yeah, this is, I think, you know, it's a real, it's a kind of a masterpiece for him, I think. And even, you know, like, I think like you talk about sort of like the, the grimness, I think there's that kind of interesting, um, quality between even like the cover art compared to like you, you alluded to, um, born to run where it's this kind of, you know, celebratory thing where he's kind of leaning on Clarence and they're in the middle of, you know, some sort of marathon live set you, you imagine where on this cover, mm-hmm. he's kind of just alone and kind of looking somewhat, he's got a sort of inscrutable expression on this cover, like a little mm. shocked or scared or something. Yeah. He's looking like a little more like haggard here, like intentionally. So where it's like, you see his like expression on the born to run cover and you see like what, what is what he is in the moment, which is like this kind of like, young jovial guy like full of life like getting the opportunity to kind of live out his like rock fantasies and here he's just kind of like there and staring out and the the space that he's in is very bare and very stark and it feels it's it's almost kind of like a punch compared to born to run which feels a little more like inviting in its warmness yeah definitely no i i i I really love the the cover of this album it's a great a great photo of him um well this is great i'm I'm so glad you picked this this has been a real a real pleasure to listen to again um 
so let's switch gears to my pick, um, which is interesting. You know, like I just said the word inscrutable and like maybe that is a, a good word for some of this band as well. Archers of Loaf is their 1993 debut, Icky Metal. Um, they are, you know, I think to me, one of the, the like great indie rock bands of the 90s. Um, they have a new album out. They just reunited, um, have a new album called Reason to Decline, which actually weirdly has – is a little different style. It almost has some Springsteenish kind of anthemic qualities to it. Oh. Um, this is their their first album, uh, and uh, so I guess just did. Were you aware of Archers? Um, did you? I'm just kind of curious, like how how you react to this. Yeah, this is it's it's almost uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think um, my understanding of archers of loaf was entirely just purely on name recognition where i would hear them kind of mentioned with a lot of their like 90s contemporaries and so like in my head i thought they were kind of like um kind of similar in vain to like uh uh, kind of a little closer to bands like pavement like those kinds Mm -hmm. of bands that really kind of defined this kind of uh this particular scene in the 90s yeah and then i think when when uh this was paired with springsteen i thought uh that i think i i had a conception of it as being kind of more kind of like snapshot story driven than it was or having like a similar sort of like sonic palette and so it was it was honestly um kind of like a, a pleasant su- surprise to hear that uh i was kind of a little bit wrong on both counts and um it it became this sort of thing where uh i think my my way of kind of like listening to it. Uh, honestly, I found kind of more enjoyment in it for how it's kind of a little closer to like the, the noisier bands in the era. And it, yeah, it, yes, I, I, I think it's the, the ways in which it kind of resembles uh, some, it's, it's a little closer to like some of the bands that are like on the fringes and not necessarily talked about that. It, it was, it was fascinating to see kind of like my expectations offended in that way. Yeah. So archers kind of occupied a weird territory, I think, cause they were, they were definitely, you know, poppier and, and, you know, some of these songs as you hear almost have kind of anthemic choruses, even though the, the lyrics are kind of inscrutable at times. I would, I always kind of thought of them as more like, I don't know. Pavement is very, you know, kind of arch and, uh, I don't know. Pavement felt more like grad school and Archers felt more like a community <laughs> college band or something, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they were, they were from North Carolina and they were Southern and, you know, they, they, they also like live, they are like an amazing, like super high energy, super noisy band, whereas pavement could sometimes be a little spotty live. Um, but yeah, so they're, they kind of occupy a weird space, as you said, like between kind of some more indie rock stuff and some of the more like, I don't know, bands like, drive like Jehu or um, uh, unwound or some, like some of the guitar work is kind of angular and, and weird. Um, but like, let's uh, we should, we should play a song here. I guess um, we'd start off web in front is kind of definitely, I think what put them on the map. That's probably mm-hmm. their most popular song that they ever did. Um, uh, so yeah, let's start with this one. Cause I think this is this seven inch. I think came out before the album and kind of got them noticed. a pin in your backbone spoke it down from there all I ever wanted was to be your spine lost your friction and you slipped for a mile overdone, overdrive overlive, override 
if we're talking about sequencing again, this is one where um, I, I really like this like right off the top because I feel like it's 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 kind of a, a double edged sword in some ways because when I uh, was first listening to this and I hit the song, I was like, oh okay, I can see the like pavement comparisons like yeah. here specifically in terms of like the particular ways of vocal delivery. This is kind of like the one of the cleaner sort of uh, melodies across the album. Um, and so it almost kind of provides a nice little like entry point before the album kind of slowly goes a little bit more and more toward the noisier territory. And I, I'm glad you brought up the, the Jehu thing because I like by the midway point of the album, I really started to just recognize how much, how, how similar that uh, vocal deliveries here are to that of like John Reese. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's you know, Reese is a genius. Um, but yeah, so they, yeah, they always have this kind of weird push pull of like, and you know you can even like, you know, uh, hear it even in some of the lyrics. They seem, and a lot of bands this year had that thing where it was like this kind of push pull with like some sort of ambition that they had that they 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 couldn't really hide, but then this sort of suspicion of success and kind of trying to like, you know, make things weirder than they would need to be to be successful or something. Well, it gets to the point of, I think, what you're talking about with the kind of inscrutable lyrics, because I feel like sometimes it's, I think sometimes it becomes kind of clear, like, what the sentiment is, even if it's not necessarily clear, kind of, like, the context it's being set in, or, like, what the meaning behind every single lyric is. And I think that this is, like, a big, like, key example of that, where, um, it's, this is one where it's, uh, the refrain is, it's very easy to pick up on the sentiment, but it's, abstracted in its own weird way where the sentiment is all I ever wanted was to be your spine. And it's this, this idea of like being somebody's like support and like literal backbone, but it's like the choice of word of like spine specifically is (laughs) one of those things that feels a little like, um, arch and displacing and becomes this kind of, I think it's one of the earliest clues in the album that like the band is their own kind of like idiosyncratic approach. And it's like, kind of tweaking certain things just enough to kind of really kind of get you to raise an eyebrow. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next song, last word, this one gets a little bit more kind of noisier um, and less kind of poppy in in a lot of ways. Um, I, I like this one a lot. But yeah, kind of to 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 your point, it's it's very funny because it starts out with this very sort of almost kind of like uh, I guess false expectation being set, where it has this like very sort of like just rhythmic, clear drum line, and that's once the guitars and specifically like that tone come in, where it's it's a little more like angular, more kind of. Uh, about what kinds of noises are being evoked rather than like necessarily meeting the kinds of like particular melodic tones that like web in front is going for. Yeah. They, they almost sometimes sound like two guitars kind of wrestling with each other or like, you know, these, these kind of weird, they clash, but they don't, they fit. Yeah. 
And this is another one where it's like the kinds of ambiguities in the lyrics kind of get to a very fascinating point where um, there's this uh, like returning thing of uh, swallow bubble I lost my chewing gum and then the second time it comes around it's my mistake now my blisters left which is it it's a like strange sort of like unexplained uh, metaphor that is kind of left to to sit in for something that would be kind of like more direct and more to the point yeah yeah they're I actually realized I've listened to this album so many times and I, I actually didn't know because the lyrics aren't mi- or the, the vocals aren't always mixed super high um, so I was kind of like looking at lyrics on my own like oh I didn't know that I didn't know that what he was saying um, <laughs> uh, what uh, where would you like to go next uh, I want to make sure we ooh um, I am actually really interested in talking about wrong uh, next yeah and this one is definitely like um I don't know, like, this is a live, like, kind of, like, this one will get the crowd, like, super hyped, you know what I mean, uh, when they mm. play it live, so th- this is a, a big fan favorite. And it's got that kind of, like, bouncy kind of mosh pit, like, rhythm. I think this might be a, another, like, this might be a little bit of a, like, stretch to compare it to. I'm not sure if this is the correct song to really sort of, like, pull it out for. But, like, another point of comparison that, like, came to mind for me is I think something more akin to, like, Dinosaur Jr., where you have these these 90s bands that are more about, like, kind of really kind of evoking these, like, loud, heavy sounds um, and the ways in which uh, guitar tones are implemented. Mm-hmm. Um and especially the the kinds of um, honestly the the refrain here, which is to me the most like fascinating part of this song, feels like almost kind of like Jay Mascus esque in its delivery. Yeah, actually, his delivery right here, yeah, is very. I never thought ah, that's really good. I never thought about that, but that totally is that kind of like slack jawed kind of thing. But yeah, I I just I really love um, I. I was in a similar place where when I first listened to this earlier in the week, like the lyrics didn't quite phase me except for like what little things could peek out. So I didn't actually catch the kind of like turn that the, the course takes here until I was uh, reading up on it and uh, specifically like looking at uh, just writing on the reissue that had come out for the deluxe release and uh, had, had read writing that like had singled out that kind of like, turn where it goes from uh, I do not think you could love me anyway because you are inferior to me which is the part that I like picked out and then I didn't realize it shifts once he kind of comes back blaring with because uh, you are superior in all aspects to me yeah, um, yeah. which is it's it's a I think it gets to that point of like that that's a very particular kind of like 90s like songwriting style that's almost kind of like it's sarcastic. It feels a bit tongue-in-cheek, self-deprecating in some ways. Yep. But it's it's. Um, I, I love the fact that it's kind of there's a complication to it. It's not like clear-cut one way or the other. It feels like it's almost like whoever the song is being addressed to, like the way that the the speaker is talking, almost shifts on a moment's notice. Yeah, no, it, it's a very. Yeah, I mean, this is a very '90s album for sure, and that that kind of, like I said, that sort of 
ironic, not ironic thing. Um, one that I wanted to touch on, which I think is a really another, really one of the catchier songs, but this, this one is a, like really explicitly sort of like, uh, this one's might. Um, mm. and this is just really like ambivalent about the whole concept of being in a band or like, you know, mm. really is, is this whole enterprise like it's on their first album too. It's yeah. like, is, is it like, it's on the first side of the first album. He's already questioning like, is, is being in a rock band, like a complete, like kind of waste of time. Um, which I thought was kind of a funny thing, which I, again, like, I think, you know, like they, they, this was a sort of a common thing, but at the same time, it's like, you know, even in their sort of rejecting the whole thing, like they're making really catchy songs that have kind of pop hooks in their own kind of skewed way. Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is sort of a funny impulse, um, or an interesting impulse. Yeah, overall, I, I, they have so many great guitar lines. I think just as a band in general, um, just very memorable. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the like very sort of like rooted in post-hardcore like contemporaries that you were talking about because it's like I think it was around here where I was thinking about how um, a lot of this I can see the very clear like direct through line to a lot of the kind of post-hardcore bands that followed, like I'm thinking about just kind of uh, like you're talking about like um, something like Unwound or um, honestly, the one that kind of came to me is like, if we're extending into like the early two thousands, like I, I see a decent amount of like in some of these tracks uh, uh, and you will know us by the trail of the dead in some yeah. of these. Oh man, that was a good band right there. Yeah, that was another band that kind of had a similar thing where it was like, it was weird sometimes and kind of off-putting, but then it could be like really sort of like catchy and, and anthemic at other points and, and also like a really chaotic kind of like, I think that Archers, you know, compared to a lot of like bands like Pavement or some other bands had a real like, they, they maintain sort of this like core of like kind of a punk band like energy to them, even as mm-hmm. they, they weren't a punk band, obviously, but... It's it's funny that you brought up the uh, kind of lyrical sentiments because like this is one where it was like on the initial listens it's almost kind of like the this is one where like the sentiment was particularly lost on me because it's such an energetic song and I feel like that that gets to the core of like a lot of what we've been talking about with both of these albums is this kind of uh, these these undertones and dualities of something kind of having this like very bold sound at times and being something that like can register to somebody as very upbeat and then you look beneath the surface and it's just all this self-aggrandizing uh just just tearing yourself down idea yeah de- no yeah definitely uh any uh where you want to go next Ooh, um i uh would love to talk about lira your hole let's do it And this is one where it feels very, the guitar here feels very, I don't even know if I would call it Jehu so much as I would call it kind of like a little more like Hot Snakes if we're talking about like Reese reference points. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I love that the verses kind of have this almost instrumental tension on it throughout with this guitar. And then it kind of breaks out into this kind of chorus where that tension is resolve but you could feel this like bubbling resentment underneath (laughs) 
Yeah, it's very like percolating kind of guitar stuff. Yeah, again, like the the records starting with like such a kind of clear, almost kind of poppy vocal style, and by here he's it, the vocal style is almost sneering in a lot of ways. It becomes yeah. this this kind of projecting the voice to be more about like expressing a kind of like mood of disgust rather than like trying to fit in with like radio friendly contemporaries. Uh, something that you both have been saying about this record that actually brings brings to mind a quote that I it, I just read it on Wikipedia, frankly. It was a 2011 quote from Mike Powell of Spin, who at the time was reviewing a, a new a deluxe edition reissue of the album, and said that it was played like the end of an era, um, that it's indie rock as hearty and art-free as oatmeal, before the lines separating it from the mainstream dissolved, before it became so eclectic. Now, what I read from that is like, the insinuation that this record is dead ahead it is not really like matt you were talking about that whole indie felt like it had to get weird to get popular kind of thing uh, in the 90s is that what you're saying as well is that like this record was just what it is on the face of it rather than having a bunch of like weird gimmicks and strange um, shit underneath the surface or do you read well, something i don't i don't know i mean i guess i just i see like yeah, there's just something with archers where like it's kind of scronky and angular and weird as they get. I, I always feel like they maintain this sort of core of like I don't want to say like a pop punk band, but like there's there's sort of this like you know forward kind of momentum that they 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 generate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean you know I suppose '93 yeah things were you know this is a couple years that would be a couple years post uh, uh, post uh, n- never mind. I know that they did turn down a deal with Maverick Records, which was Madonna's label. Oh, weird. Um, and Interesting. I think that they kind of live to regret turning that down because they they run a label alias, which is kind of notoriously a really horrible label that kind of, I think, screwed people over on royalties pretty bad. They finally got them free, and I think Merge is putting out the like a lot, a lot of the reissues and stuff. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, I think they kind of had that shot to like take the next step if they had wanted to, but they... I guess decided to like not go that way. Not maybe that was out of you know indie rock kind of ethics or independent kind of music ethics, or maybe it was there's some latent fear of success, or you know mm. having to like you know having to try to make that leap. You know, I don't know. I'd be I'd be curious yeah. what their rationale was. Mm-hmm. Based on what you've heard, Natalie, this was your first spin around with the with the band. Based on what you've heard, do you think they could have gone big if they had just stuck with that? Uh, if they'd gone with that Madonna record deal. I don't necessarily know if that label would have been like the right one for them. I think it would have had to involve a lot of like compromising of their sound. Um, but I, I think I'm not necessarily sure if there's, cause I'm not entirely familiar of that label. If they had a history of just putting out like nineties alternative bands mm-hmm. like this. Um, cause it, it, it seems to me like, um, where they would have probably found more success would have been in like the labels that like their peers were at. So like, had they like signed to nineties era, like sub pop or like one of those other Matador. labels. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I th- Alias was definitely an indie rock label. I, I, I don't think it was like anything necessarily wrong with who they signed. It was more just like I think they were kind of poorly run mm-hmm. and like not just like not they didn't do a good job kind of getting their stuff out there. Um, I'm trying to think. I think they had some other acts of some note at, at one point, but I don't know if they're really in, in business anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, one that I like, and I kind of – it's interesting because it kind of – this one points sort of a finger into the far future for Eric Bachman, um, the lead singer. Um, he he did a project in the kind of early 2000s called Crooked Fingers. Um, he's also done um, some time uh, in in the uh, band and uh, studio and touring band for Nico Case. Um in, in that era, uh, hate paste, uh, kind of has like a folkier element mm-hmm. to it. And it's, uh, and, and the, the, the kind of, some of this is a little bit more similar to what he ended up doing later after Archer's a loaf. This one was fun because you could hear these vocals over something way grungier, something way sludgier, mm-hmm. and yet I think both the yeah. el- vocals elevate the almost cloying, like folkiness of the instruments, um, and and the other way around. Like it makes it sound a little bit more, I don't know, vaunted that he's sort of mealy mouthing over this kind of nice folky riff, and then it goes to this very noisy shit, you know. Yeah, and it's waltz time, which I always like. That is <laughs> that is pretty good, actually. I'm a big, I'm a big waltz time fan. Waltz punk, you got to bring it back, Matt. There, there's also something curious about it falling, like basically, like right around the near middle part of the album, where it almost kind of once once the album has given you time to settle into its kind of sound and the way that it's constantly shifting in its sort of ways. Uh, because like one of the things that we haven't really addressed is after a while uh, the the beginning and the end of the album have these kind of like more fully formed songs. And then in between there are a lot of these kind of like smaller interstitial interstitials like might or fat or sick file that are kind of, uh, kind of breaking things up being a little bit more chaotic. And here it's, it's almost an inversion of that inversion where the diversion is itself something that you expect would be like a little more, a little cleaner, a little more kind of, sedate but it's to to jason's point it's almost like the different elements of the song kind of highlight the intentional kind of cacophony and angularness of the the main um i don't even know if that's a mandolin that is what it sounds like i think so um but it's the vocals enhancing that and that instrumental part is like what's also kind of really kind of allowing the timbre of eric's vocals to stand out in the way that they are See, I was about to say all of that, um, but then Matt cut me off, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I don't, I don't get to say all that now. All that smart shit, you know." I had that Sorry, down I stepped almost on exactly. Your touchdown yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I know we gotta be conscious of time. Is is there anything else uh, that stuck out to you that you want to touch on before we? And we got some reader or listener questions here and, and stuff to get to as well. 
Yeah. Um, honestly, I think um, to to that point, I would love to like briefly touch on Sick File to talk about kind of like the the role of those kinds of interstitial songs among like some of the other sort of modes that we've seen the band in across the album. Yeah. Yep. And here is it's fascinating because it almost kind of feels like like really kind of like rooted in hardcore where you almost kind of have these like pseudo panic chords and this this I Oh yeah. You it feels like the point where it's like all the kind of like tension that's been bubbling across the album that like maybe has had release points has really kind of hit the most like fervent point. Like I believe this is like if not the fastest one of the fastest songs on the album it feels very primed for like a, a mosh pit moment yeah it's definitely it's definitely like that kind of hard, classic hardcore beat and you know uh, yeah it feels like maybe a throwback to like maybe these were bands as you guys were in like five years before this or something mm. yeah it's, it's tracks like these that were like the biggest surprise to me across this record for whatever sort of idea i had of the band before uh yeah it just being the sort of thing where it was um that this band that i would see name checked against bands that didn't even dare to like venture into this territory like going into modes like this so like freely and <laughs> bravely and just kind of being willing to just like throw themselves into here uh if they sense that the record could like use this kind of a jolts is and it was it made the the record really fun for me to engage with. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Just given like your conception of it, like because you know, as you said, like what Web and Front totally tracks to probably like what you thought, and and Sick File is is definitely like, oh my god, my dog is being oh that's my that's okay. My, I was, I was just going to say my dog too hyped up. Yeah, he's he's, 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 Oscar, he wants buddy, you to start Oscar's the circle pit, dog. Oscar, you're paranoid. Remember no. counterclockwise every time. I don't even, I mean, dogs just became podcast members, I think over COVID. So yeah, they're all friends of the pod. It's all part of it. Oscar um, buddy. Before that's we cool. actually call it the end of the podcast, Matt, you had a clip you wanted to bring up from another piece of oh, media, right? right? Now we saw some <laughs> real, real rock critics here, Beavis and Butthead. I totally forgot this and I was just Googling around and like, I think it was some detail maybe in their Wikipedia page, but this clip is super funny. So this is like the video to web in front is very like classically like, 90s you know indie rock is just they these guys at the on a farm are just kind of doing weird stuff like wearing like gas station jackets and that kind of classic uniform um of that era but uh, beavis and butthead aren't as impressed what's the deal with this short dude yeah <laughs> is he like in the band or is he just like some weird dude really it's like all these videos now they like just get a couple weird dudes and like just shake the camera around and just like a bunch of crap. Yeah. <laughs> they need to get back to the basics, like chicks in bikinis and explosions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of cars, like, and they're all driven by chicks in bikinis. <laughs> a big thingy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now that's what I call a buzz clip. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it just because like I just love it. They just get weird dudes and just like shake the camera around, <laughs> which is you know, you know, not what? I, unlike that I just video. Th- I just thought of a bunch of fucking Primus music videos when he said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's 
<laughs> yeah, the Beavis and Butthead, I forgot. I kind of forgotten how funny, like, the, the like the funniest parts really was when they were, like, watching, like, um, videos. I remember the, there's an infamous one of the, I think they were watching Cut Your Hair by Pavement, and, like, Beavis just starting, like, these guys, they just need to try harder. Try harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's Which pretty is good, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, <it's, laughs> Pavement didn't always try that hard. That's uh, <laughs> part of their charm. But, yeah, no, it was, like, they, those video parts were so funny. All right. Well, I feel like we covered Archers pretty well. I think we'll let Beavis and Butthead have the last word. Um, and we got some, uh, Natalie's graciously agreed to stick around for some listener questions. And so, Jason, you can, uh, let's, let's, let's quiz. For sure. Uh, well, first I should uh, do the whole pluggy-wuggy deal that if you're a patron of uh, MinMax on patreon.com slash MinMax, M-I-N-N with two N's, M-A-X, uh, you can send us questions and songs for our guests to listen to and respond to and uh, and all sorts of fun other ways. I mean, we're not the only thing that you get, but of course, you know that this is a piece of free content, a free podcast feed, uh, wherever you listen. Um, but that's the bonus that uh, that patrons get. Do you, can you tell how good I am at this now, Natalie? I mean, I feel like I never <laughs> I never do this with any of the other podcasts I make. But that's the sell. Go to patreon.com slash minmax, M-I-N-N-M-A-X, to get a bunch of uh, fun content, including video games and movies and watch-alongs and all sorts of weird shit that Ben Hansen does with all, with all of his best friends. Uh, but for this time, uh, you're going to hear questions that, uh, that our supporters who really like our show have suggested. And some of them are returning, actually, from previous episodes because I thought they might be appropriate for uh, our guest and music that we've discussed today. Anyway, first question comes from White Max, who says, Hey, Crossfaders, we all know that our tastes peaked in high school and what we were listening to then was the best. Uh, White Max's question is, what music do you enjoy now that your younger self would dismiss and maybe call you lame for listening to? Natalie? This is a tricky one because uh, I, I mentioned obviously Bruce off the off the top of the podcast as an example of it, but like I feel like a lot of my earlier listening tastes were kind of just strangely dorky in their own rights. Uh, I, I love to tell people the fact that um, I was very into Steely Dan in high school, which Hell is yeah. not kind of that's the- actually very cool. <laughs> it is cool now, but at the time it was it was kind of the dorky thing to to be like very into Steely Dan in the year like 2008 um when you're like 14 years old um <laughs> but uh i i think if i w- would have to give an answer uh it would probably be some of the more like mellow stuff that i'm into now probably some of the more kind of like acoustic singer songwritery stuff mm-hmm. uh that i listen to or like the the kind of more overtly folk stuff i'm thinking like this this is also just in terms of like filling in blind spots where I would have like otherwise just not really dared to venture. So like stuff like um, my, my girlfriend has like really gotten me into like Anais Mitchell or like um, thinking about uh, Nathan Salzberg, who's a folk musician who oh. I like, got really into last year. He is so good. Yeah. It's Psalms him. that that record last year was like probably my favorite folk release of the, of the year. It's, it's a really incredible one. Nice. Matt, do you ever think back on what you used to listen uh, to and uh, yeah. how you, you judge yourself today? I mean, I think if you want to go back to like, <clears throat> you know, middle school or, it, you know, I, I think that I liked a lot of different music, but it was definitely, you know, aggressive guitar oriented music. So I'd say all of jazz I, that oh, I yeah. like now, all of classical pretty much. <clears throat> and I think, you know, more, you know, I, I doubt that 13 year old Matt would, have said like Joni Mitchell is one of the great songwriters of the 20th century <laughs> or anything like that. So, you know, I mean, I think I, you know, I had that kind of knucklehead is 
sort of, I mean, not that I was like super tough or anything, but you know what I mean? At that age, you just, I think I was drawn more to like, I could like a lot of different things as long as it was somewhat like aggressive, whether that was like hip hop or like mm. heavy metal or like punk or, you know, alternative or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think just in, you know, probably being, you know, more into, you know, like some of the, you know, folkier stuff. Um, and like I said, jazz, classical, I'm sure I would have thought we're just really super boring at that time. Yeah. Which we now I dig, like a lot. We got to dig in someday to then how you became such a big fan of American primitive. Uh, if, if you're, <laughs> if you were so aggressive in your youth, uh, we should, we should, yeah, no, I would probably open that, that lobster at some point. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I gotta say mine, like anything that was made to dance to, I would have fucking reviled in oh. high school. Like any of the dance pop or like hyper pop or any of the stuff that I actually listen to now, I'm going to a Magdalena Bay concert this Friday. And I would like, I can just tell that 14 year old Jason is sh- hanging his head in shame. He has more hair, but he's a fucking dipshit. So who cares? Um, but, uh, I would actually get to the next question. Uh, John Jensen actually asked this question on our episode with Todd Hansen about, uh, the beach boys and Nina Nastasia. Um, he asked, what music would you want played at your funeral? Uh, let's start with Natalie. This is this is probably the trickiest of the the questions for me because whenever this question comes up, it's I realize it's not something I tend to think about. Um, I think um, I, I understand that uh, I, I there's a lot of like uh, I think a sort of like impulse to like uh, associate like a very meaningful or like beautiful piece of music with it, but for me, it's almost kind of like. I don't know. It, it almost kind of incites uh, its own sort of existential terror of like, oh, what, what do mm. I want the last thing to, to be remembered? <laughs> Me being remembered by B. And it would realistically, I'd probably just go a very sort of simplistic route and just, I, I feel like it would almost have to be like just by default instrumental, like maybe something like some piece of like neoclassical or like post rock uh, that would like have some sort of, I guess like emotional significance or ties to me, but it's something where the, the ways in which I imprint on it is a little bit more abstract than like, because I'm such a lyrics person, I tend to like very over scrutinize about that sort of thing. And so I feel like trying to, to pick that for this particular sort of task would almost like be stress inducing to the point where it would probably kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah, there's so many ways you can go with it, and yeah, I'd probably just like defer to like whatever. <laughs> I don't know whatever church music they wanted to play. If that's where it happened, I don't know. <laughs> but I, play, I don't know. Like I'm I'll trying to think of like a song. Like, you know, if I was gonna go like kind of off track, I might go with uh, Husker Du's cover of Eight Miles High" by the Birds, hmm. which is definitely one of my favorite songs. It's pretty aggressive, but I think it's got this kind of like very all encompassing kind of psychedelic kind of swirly quality about it that I mm. is really powerful to me. I think it's like, to me, like the best cover of all time. Wow. Um, and so we'll go with that. It'd be counter programming, I guess. <laughs> counter programming. Keep it alive. Uh, okay. Internet Levi on our episode with Austin Wintry asked, Hey, Crossfade, how do you go about diving into an artist with a large discography? Or do you start at the beginning? You look at their best albums. Do you watch a YouTube guide? Do you start like with their most recent release? Natalie, uh, you've listened to a shit ton more music than I do. Do you ever <laughs> run into that problem? And how do you ever like surmount it? I think for me, it, it just becomes a case of what makes the most sense for any given artist. It mm. becomes a sort of question of like, 
has this artist like radically evolved over time? Like what are they most known for? Uh, what makes for a good entry point? Um, Cause it's uh, to, to bring up a, a point here, uh, like Bruce Springsteen, uh, his discography is one that for years almost kind of like was daunting to me uh, at that level where like the only album I had listened to in full for years was like, I think the rising. And then it became like, just kind of entering in with what he's kind of known for and what kind of, people believe are the albums that are like the most emblematic of his strengths and uh, positive qualities, like what people gravitate to. Mm. But then in other contexts, it becomes something where sometimes going into the most revered work sometimes means that you're going to miss out on like crucial context Uh, to, to give a story earlier this year. um, I do this thing every year. That's uh, big on Twitter, which is a music writers exercise where um, in the month of February, you pick an album a day and you listen to it for the very first time. And you like throw an off the cuff review of it up there. And uh, I, a lot of times I try to pick like blind spots. And uh, in this particular instance, earlier this year, I uh, wanted to do an album by coil and I was going to do like ape of Naples. And like one of my friends, like rightfully steered me away and was like, she was like, no, 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 no. You can't just like go into like the most like well-known thing from there. There's a lot of like context in terms of, uh, where they're coming from, like how they're kind of building the sound from the members. And that's uh, a record where the context has kind of like radically changed. And so it's, I, to me, it's all dependent on what makes the most sense. If it's an album, if it's an artist where you can just jump into the most well-known albums or right at the beginning and kind of get all the context you need from there, I think that that's a viable solution. Hmm. Um, in other instances, it might be a case where you might need to like, sample some other stuff and get a sense of what the artist is like before you kind of like really dive into like the big meaty heavy hitters. Yeah. I don't know if there is like a Bible Bowie album, for example, like you would need to sample mm. from throughout that. I mean, yeah, he's the most he's low fruit I could imagine, but like, yeah, uh, Matt, do you have a more prescriptive way of doing it or is it all contextual um, for you? I guess too? I sometimes, I mean, you know, obviously it's pretty easy to kind of find usually like the canonical record or whatever that is, is generally, you know, like, but I, I, I kind of like to try to find like the, like the a more of a like a, a fan favorite type. You know, like I'd almost compare it like to, to tonight, uh, darkness versus like born to rot. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and probably like the band I worked the hardest like years. It was like, I it, like I, I would work at it and it never quite clicked. And then one day it was like a magic eye painting. I was like, this is one of the greatest bands of all time, hands down. The uh, the band The Fall. Um, from England. And, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think I tried the, this nation saving grace, which is kind of like always the pick, but then I found like hex induction hour, which is kind of like, I think more of like the fans, like true fans fave. And that one kind of turned me on or, or like, you know, it's a good example. Like you mentioned Steely Dan, like Asia mm-hmm. would sort of be the pick, mm-hmm. but then there's like, I think like the Royal scam. I was going like, to say like, you know, this yes. is a fun inverse question to how we actually approached <laughs> that episode because you gave it to a, non-dan listener and you and said I, the royal scam is one and he fucking hated it oh my I know, god I know. Was like i've never liked dan i've never listened and this does yeah. not help i don't like this it that was, was really the only negative reaction we re- like super negative reaction yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I mean, that we but, ever but had but i really appreciated it he was very honest my yeah and i, I podcast, see that's yes. a problem i should have gone for like asian probably like known more of those songs and stuff but i guess i always try to like to find those ones which like i mean maybe darkness might even fit that bill for springsteen like i said 
Mm. That's an interesting point that you bring up because I think that's almost kind of like the inverse thing to with me when there's almost kind of a band with a formidable discography. If I try one of the like heavy hitters or something that should be like a natural entry point and it doesn't click for me, my impulse is almost certainly to then go with the flip side of being like, okay, well, if I don't like them at like this particular sound that they're known for, let me go with the outlier. Um, to, to this point, um, Spoon is a band that like I've always kind of like liked but didn't love and it was not until uh i'd sampled like gaga gaga Ga, i'd sampled hot thoughts um and like neither of those like fully clicked with me as records and it was uh transference that i went with which is like kind of seen as like the black sheep in their discography okay, the one yeah. that has like all the like weird production quirks yeah um, and that was the one where it like kind of clicked together for me of being like oh I can understand this band if they're going into a different mode. And that almost kind of like then unlocked everything else. Yeah. I kind of like that with Spoon. I think I like them, but I don't, you know, I think I probably have like four records by them, but I don't, I guess I don't consider myself a big fan. I'm looking forward to getting into Spoon. Somebody I know just uh, turned me on to them and I did not dislike their This Is on Spotify, which frankly, that's the answer. (laughs) That for me, that's the answer to the question is like, go to their this is that's what the artist is determined is the most like representative <laughs> of their work and just put it on shuffle. Don't listen to the top tracks, put it on shuffle. You want to get a little bit under the skin, right? But uh, that's, you know, I guess music in the modern era. Uh, next question is from Ben, not Ben Hansen, but just somebody named Ben from uh, the MinMax community who asks, do you ever worry that some piece of music you like has a built in expiration date? Like someday it will cease being relevant to you. Natalie, again, just the broad swath of music you listen to. There's got to be some stuff that feels like, oh, this is temporal. Let's enjoy it while it lasts. This is, this is to me, like one of the more interesting questions here, because this is something that I think is a natural anxiety with anybody who's listening to music, especially like ascribing worth to music at a very sort of pivotal piece Mm -hmm. of their life. Uh, I'm thinking like when you're at like a very sort of formative age, like your teenage years or like, Uh, early college where it feels like kind of the worlds of music and like the possibilities out there are just kind of like opening up to you. And this, this is something that like I have thought on occasion where uh, I just had like that voice in the back of my head that was like, Oh, you're like obsessed with this now. It's going to be embarrassing to look back on. And like, funnily enough, I feel like it's the, the stuff that I thought would be that is all the stuff that kind of endures and it's the stuff that i don't expect that kind of has that effect it's it becomes this sort of thing where it's like um for to to give an example um one of kind of like the uh uh epitomes of this sort of thing where it was like uh very uh very stereotypical college experience of like getting very into uh the dismemberment plans emergency and i when i'm like in my Mm. like early to mid 20s and like basically it's like everything that is in there is like representative of what i'm feeling at the moment and it became like there was this like thought crossing my mind of like oh this is just gonna be like a snapshot of like what it is in this point in my life and i'm gonna like move past it and it's that that's been one of the records that's endured but it's it's been like um there there have been some other things that i was kind of like obsessed with like similarly that i've kind of then since like faded on so like um i I guess to give another example like um death grips a band that i still like like i was very sort of like evangelical about like when i was in college and they were still like kind of this like big fresh new thing that felt like it was this this uh very like boundary breaking like time transcending piece of music and it's uh 
for the most part, like I still enjoy what I go back and listen to, but it's almost kind of, it feels at a kind of remove because it feels like I'm in a sort of like different emotional state, Mm. which like can be its own sort of benefit. Like one of the things that I like about music that I still respond to that has that kind of remove is that it reminds me of kind of like, it feels very vivid in its own kind of way. It feels like it's, uh, I listen to it and it, feels like it's its own form of a reminder of where I was at like the point in the life and the point in my life where I heard it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's uh, I think sometimes it can be embarrassing, but I think a lot of times if the piece of music is still good, you'll still be able to see the worth in it. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't, I, you know, I tend to not worry about that. You know what I mean? I don't think you can, like you said, it's, it's, it's hard to predict. And mm-hmm. I've definitely, you know, lived longer than both of you. And I've had things that kind of have drifted away what? from me and, and drifted back. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. over time. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, even songs that, you know, I guess I, I tend to think of like, you know, if, it, if it's something I don't like anymore, I, I tend to look, you know, I try to look at it fondly like a somebody you're friends with in like first grade or something that you just you know, moved or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like that was at a certain time, that was, you know, what I needed, the song that I needed or whatever, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't, it's, it's really hard to predict. I think what, yeah, death groups. I'm, I'm with you. I, it's been, a, it's been a minute since I, I liked that when it first, it just seemed really exciting when it came out and mm. maybe that excitement dissipates over time. Um, I, I should check that out again, but um. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think it's it's like life. You can't predict what's going to stick and what's not. So I just would not worry about it. Hmm. That's a healthy way to look at it. Me, I separated into uh, what's like. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead to me. <laughs> what, I mean, like I, I separated into what's going to be like musically relevant to me. What what do I what can I tell my interests are right now because I'm you know pubescent and a little bit stupid. And what is like oh this is actually messaging. Maybe it's music and lyrics dichotomy of like this is a message that will connect with me. Uh, now because I'm young versus later because it will feel kitschy because it will feel sentimental, whatever, you know, like the all American rejects as a band that lands on both fronts. Like, I don't think that band holds up. And I feel like when I was young, I listened to them and I was like, this is the music of my time. This is my time now. And then, you know, they just sort of like <laughs> yeah, fell yeah. off the face of the earth for both me and I guess the rest of the world. Um, and it doesn't feel like bad or wrong that that happened. It felt like I enjoyed it while it lasted. There was a natural, like, uh, like Ben asks, expiration date built in. Just like, you know, wouldn't eat food after it's rotten, wouldn't listen to this music after it doesn't apply to me anymore. That's that's the way I can I, uh, contextualize it, which has led me to li- probably avoid listening to a lot of music that I might still like. But, uh, you know, my problems are my own. Uh, this podcast is not about me. Tanner Hoisington asks uh, in our actually, this was also from our episode about Mike, excuse me, with Mike Park of Asian Men Records about Alkaline Trio, a record he helped produce and the Exploding Hearts, which is one of the abiding favorites of this podcast for me. Um, Tanner wants to know, uh, how do you feel about bands that split singing duties equally among members? That was directly in reference, I believe, to Alkaline Trio. Um, but, uh, I, th- I think it's appropriate here because again, I just, I just want to, you know, pick at the nits of, of Natalie's brain on a lot of the music she listens to. Do you, do you have thoughts about that, that trope about that uh, structure for a band, Natalie? It's interesting. Cause I hadn't really thought about it. Like, I, I guess, um, very sort of intentionally before the question arose and it became the sort of thing where I, I I've spent all day kind of like racking my brain for artists I've listened to, but it's, 
it's the sort of thing where I think it, I don't really tend to notice or care about it. Like in, in a more kind of active sense, unless it is like an active detriment to the music, because I think it's, it becomes like a tricky thing because it's kind of, it's like your mileage may vary, like whatever sort of works for you in that particular context where Mm. for, for my own sake, it becomes a kind of situation where so long as the different vocal styles like mesh together in one way or another, or the ways in which they contrast are uh, exciting in some kind of way. And the record or the live performance or however it is you're engaging with the music doesn't feel too disruptive uh, in going from one to the other. Cause it's, I think it's, it's the sort of thing where it's like growing up with the Beatles. That's like the big easy Mm, obvious like answer to that. Uh, But it's also like, uh, Jason is aware that like one of my favorite bands is Animal Collective, who like are on some releases definitely skew the vocals more toward like one member over the others. But there are times where it's been uh, kind of like even neck and neck between like Avitar and Panda Bear there, and it's it becomes a case where it's like when it's most organic, it kind of it feels like its own way of giving a record or a band its own kind of distinct identity. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it could be a valuable tool if used correctly. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I think it worked out well for the Beatles. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, th- I think, you know, like the band would be one. That I was I think about it was to say very, the band like, between you know, where, Rick where and yeah. Three, three really iconic vocalists. Um, Fugazi had Guy and Ian. Um, yeah. I think, I think, I mean, I, I think, yeah, unless it's really bad or something, I think it kind of adds some interest yeah. to what's going on. Yeah, it helped like define each of them again in the band's case specifically, helped to define their like vocal presentation to contrast them against the others too. You know, like Levon mm-hmm. has his very country twang. Uh, Richard Manuel sounds like he's just always on the edge of like the next bout of depression. Rick Danko kind of sounds goofy and like he haw like like a old country bumpkin or something. Like. It, it helps, I think, define characters within a band, too, sometimes. Mm-hmm. In addition to, like, I can yeah. assume that because Richard was singing this song, he wrote it. And it's like, oh, that means a lot because I know how Richard turned out, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Really. Oh, Low Low would be another great one. Alan and Mimi. Oh, yeah. That would be a great one. Yes. Um, you had to get the Minnesota angle in, didn't you? <laughs> you know what? I don't care where they're from. That's one of the great bands of the last 30 years, Low, to me. I will put them on I, my listen list because yeah, I've had a really, chance. They really truly are. Yeah, that's I, that's also another one where um, I feel like that's that's one where, like, going back to the large discography question, I'd be interested to see how you dive into that because their early stuff is so vastly different from where they are now. Yeah. Well, Re- taking, yeah, vastly taking recommendations. Otherwise, it's the uh, this um, is for me. If I had to sell maybe things we lost in the fire. Mm. Okay. okay. Or I, the new ones are really think, good too, though. I mean, even the last album's great. Yeah, it's, it's it's a unique situation where, like, of their early sound, I think, like, Things We Lost in the Fire is, like, really good as, like, an idea of, like, where they started out. Mm. And then um, probably, I'd say, um, the, the trilogy of albums that they've just done, which are all with the same producer, BJ Burton, kind of, um, to, to give away the game, they start as, like, a slowcore band and gradually get into something that kind of morphs that with uh, something more akin to noise. Um, and so uh, the first album uh, that they did with him there, Ones and Sixes, is kind of like the... 
it feels like the the stepping stone album like the transitional one where it's like it's starting to be there but it's not quite there and then the last couple are kind of more overtly noisy and the last couple are both excellent yeah but they have so many i mean i'm thinking of like the Great Destroyer is really good. Drums and Guns mm. is really good. Wow. Ah, Drums and Guns is great. Um, Jeez, when really? the cur- when, actually, you should almost check out like really early stuff, like when the curtain hits the cast. Like, just yes. for that, like ultimate, like, I mean, you talk about slowcore, like they were, like, they had minimal. a minute. Yeah. I mean, they were, yeah. Like, people used yeah. to sit down in like the 7th Street entry for their shows wow. on the floor. Mm. Like, the whole crowd would be sitting and like shushing people and stuff. Wow. Yeah, um, I'd say from Curtain Hits the Cast especially, try out um, uh, Do You Know How to Waltz, which is like kind of, I think, the defining kind of early song from them for me, where it's this gradual, like sort of very intentionally slow, like almost 15 minute song. whoa Okay, I'll give them a listen. Uh, they sound exciting. They sound uh, fun to watch the rise of. More like high, if you know what I mean. Um, the final question comes from Mexi Flores, and it was on our episode about uh, the Foo Fighters and Kendrick Lamar with Janet Garcia. Um, I'm asking it because uh, both of you have interviewed personalities in your various industries. Matt, I think you've spoken to a lot of musicians as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Slash, Ice T. Yeah. In um, addition to your, you well, know, Lars Ulrich. Lars Ulrich. Was this all from GI? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh you know, goodness. there's that whole, I had a lot of opportunities with either like voice acting or uh-huh. the guitar, the whole guitar hero oh, rock yeah, band yeah. boom definitely mm-hmm. provided some cool opportunities which that was lars yeah. and slash you well, know what i'm gonna say well, lars yeah. people hate on him he was probably one of the funnest people i ever talked to huh he was like super gregarious super enthusiastic like i think he's a really smart guy i'll tell I him that next that. time i see him he's he's a he's a he's a minx you <laughs> know <a> minx <laughs> he's puckish are you he's puckish. Will- are you william powell in the third man in like 1935 yeah, yeah, yeah. who yeah, are he's you puckish he's he has a scandinavian kind of puckishness to him <laughs> Um, <laughs> all right this yeah. is not what the podcast about the uh, okay. mexi flores wants to know uh name an artist that you would love to interview i'm gonna say musical artist the question is posed is name an artist but musical artist uh, natalie you're actually in the throes of that you're currently doing a lot, whole lot of uh, essay work and interview work um about artists you love today and uh and, and i want to know what what's one what's your white whale at this point i mean at this point it's it's not to kind of um, recycle things that we've been talking about, but it would probably be Bruce. Um, I think the, the main thing that I look for whenever I uh, pitch interviews is I I think first and foremost, I think uh, is this somebody who feels like they have like a lot of stories to tell somebody who's like uh, an engaged speaker, somebody who would be like a really fun, gregarious person to interview. And like, would it be a compelling read? And I think, he kind of hits all the boxes in that regard for me, where he has like these decades of knowledge and experiences to kind of draw from and dig into. But it would also just from seeing him talk, he seems just very down to earth and casual about the way that he talks about his art and like the stories that formed it. Um, beyond that though, I think um, a couple of the other ones that like I've had on my radar is again, to kind of go to a, a previous point that I've had, like um Animal Collective being another similar one where with them, it feels like there there's always something different going on with them. Mm. And so uh, especially the interplay between them and kind of like their own different like mindsets with how they like approach their music. They each kind of have like very distinct personalities um, would be a fun one. And uh, very similarly, uh, the, the fiery furnaces who are like a big sort of like favorite of mine where that's, that's one that's um, very fun. I was actually digging into like 
archived interviews from them like back from like 2003 2004 hmm. where it's um the the core of the band is it's made up of a brother and a sister uh matt freeberger eleanor freeberger um and uh if you dig into their interviews enough you like quickly sense that like the main draw with them is the fact that they have this very sort of very clear on its sleeve like sibling sort of dynamic where they're like constantly like getting like little digs in at each other and like (laughs) one of them will like say something kind of like very like playfully mean at the other the other one will like sarcastically like throw it off It, it it would be the sort of thing where it would the act of interviewing would be like just as fun as it would be to like bring the piece to life or to read it nice I like those answers. Uh, Matt, yeah, those you've, you've already spoken to Lars. Um, you've already spoken oh, to Slash. <laughs> Where else could you go from there? Um, you know, I wanted to say real quick, um, I, I'm not super well-versed on the Fiery Furnaces, but for some reason, I got really into Eleanor Freeberger had an album called Last Summer about I mean, like 10 years mm. ago. Anyway. That's a great record. That's a really, like, that one song, End of the Seventh Ray. Oh, I fucking love that song. Anyway, just, I just wanted to say that. Um, so I would, to me, like, it would be hard to just a get the chance to be in the same room with and the challenge of like interviewing Dylan because like, mm. you know, mm. kind of sparring, like what mask is he putting on that day or, <laughs> you know, like what cryptic kind of, you know, jive is he going to be on in any particular interview? Because, you know, he's always like contradicting himself and, mm-hmm. you know, in odd ways. So that would be hard um, to, you know, just because, like, how long are these guys going to be alive? Um, For sure. I would like – there's a lot of people that I would like to interview from, like, you know, late 80s, early 90s, uh, you know, even later um, hip-hop artists. Like, maybe, like, uh, Andre 3000 from Outkast, um, mm-hmm. Slick Rick, I think is a really weird and interesting dude. And I just feel like sometimes, you know, I think due to – well, factors like maybe racism or how seriously hip hop is taken. Like, I feel like when I read interviews with rappers, it's always sort of about like, like whatever the narrative for that release is like, you know, you know, record sales or success or like dealing with haters or like whatever beefs are going on and stuff. Like I'd really like to sit down with like these guys and talk about like how they actually made records or, you know, how they approached writing lyrics or like the, like how they made beats or how they interacted in the studio. Because I feel like, there's a lot of like that kind of, you know, information or interviews and stuff about like how, you know, how like rumors by Fleetwood Mac was made or things like that. But I feel like maybe hip hop wasn't always taken as seriously by maybe the uh, sort of, you know, critical establishment or journalism. And I, I just think there's probably a lot of really interesting like stuff about the craft of actually making records um, that would be interesting with those guys or, or people of that nature um, mm-hmm. that I just, I don't think, exists to the same way that it exists for like say classic rock records yeah yeah i think i think you should get uh dell behind the mic and, and just that would about, be like he's a fascinating the, dude yeah what and, video games you know, are like today what do you think about cloud yeah. streaming technology and all that shit the guy <laughs> yeah, predicted and, like the downfall of the dreamcast or whatever right <laughs> yeah. no dell dell the funky homo saving he's a super he'd be he's a that's a great example though jason like you know what i mean i just don't there's probably not a lot of like long form interviews there's really him, not i'm know? looking at his wikipedia now and it's all just like factually he fell and broke yeah. his ribs at a concert that's kind of all we know about him yeah and he's like ice cube's first cousin and i <laughs> don't really know what that relationship is like i didn't know this jesus yeah, yeah we gotta know this uh let's get so, on you know I, I just think i think there's a lot of gaps in like in the same way actually you spoke about games 
like there's not enough just documentary of history of games. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. exists in hip hop as well. And and that's maybe two art forms that, you know, took a long time to be taken for sure. Uh, seriously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the end of our list of questions. Actually, we have uh, another crossfade tradition of allowing our listeners and supporters to suggest songs for us to play as our outro each time, uh, because hell, it's kind of like pirate radio. We're not on YouTube. Google doesn't listen to this podcast, doesn't know that we use whole tracks at a time. I got so excited. I forgot to mention the name of the supporter who suggested this song for us. It is technical dreamer gave us this song. The man who outran time. Thank you again. Technical dreamer. Uh, this one is The Man Who Outran Time from the soundtrack to the video game Aerial Knights Never Yield, a game I haven't played yet, but I listened through about half of this soundtrack before recording because it's just, it's another level of like funky hip hop yeah. stuff. Have you taken a listen to this one, Matt? Yeah, it was super funky. I liked it. Like some good sax stuff. Yeah. Kind of cool, like a little it, bass line. And it sounds kind of like skeletal kind of groove I thought was cool. Like it, yeah. was, it was really, it was a fun song. It's a good production sound. It's like you put Budos Band or Menahan Street Band in front of like a stock hip hop groove and it just... It just works for some reason. Uh, this is a really good track. We're going to play it on our outro, but um, I'll let Matt handle uh, plugs and goodbyes and all that kind of stuff before we actually play that. Yeah. Well, um, number one, Natalie, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Um, we really appreciate it. And this is like super fun conversation. So thank you. Um, and and you can um, check Natalie's out at uh, Twitter. Natalie's not in it is the handle and that has some links to some of her work and then just general thoughts uh as long as you know twitter exists um (laughs) so uh if you want to support something that's going strong with great leadership unlike twitter min max under the auspices of ben hansen on patreon patreon.com slash m-i-n-n-m-a-x you can support there we appreciate it and we appreciate you listening and uh we'll see you in a couple weeks Running the game, man, I'm on the right track. I'm running the game, man, I'm on the right track.